Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. I uh, remember well the first time that I saw the original Ghostbusters movie. Now, I'm not talking about the most recent one that came out last year or even that terrible remake that came out a few years ago. I'm talking about the OG original Ghostbusters from 1984. And I remember that movie because I saw it when I was about six or seven years old. And I don't remember because it had state-of-the-art special effects for its time, or even because it has some amazing one-liners in it. But I remember that movie because it scared me to death. <laughs> A comedy scared me to death. And specifically, there was one scene in particular where Sigourney Weaver's character was in her kitchen, and she opened the door of her refrigerator, and I'm sure if you remember this scene, there was a terrifying ghost hanging out in her refrigerator. And one of the movie's main characters, Dr. Peter Bankman, played by the great Bill Murray, would later say of the infamous refrigerator scene, generally you don't see that kind of a, uh, behavior from compliance. <laughs> and the truth was, he was right. Because for me... It scared me so much to see that ghost in the refrigerator while other kids were worried about monsters under their bed or in their closet. I was afraid of monsters that were living in my refrigerator. So much so, and I kid you not, I'm not making this up, that there was a period of time that when I would approach the refrigerator, I would only open the door a crack, just enough so that I could peek in to see and make sure there wasn't a ghost inside that was going to reach out and grab me. I was a weird kid. And of course, I can laugh about it now, but really only partly so. Because as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that my childhood fear was less about monsters and more about my fear of the unknown. And I can say that this morning because as I've gotten older, I recognize that that same fear, that same feeling, still resides inside me, and it's only the monsters that have changed as I've gotten older. While that fear of the unknown first found its expression in a ghost hiding in an icebox in my refrigerator, as I've grown into becoming an adult, it now haunts the recesses of my mind through news headlines and world events. Where I was afraid, and the fear of the unknown made me afraid to open the refrigerator door in our kitchen as a kid, as an adult, the world is scary enough that I get afraid to turn on the news or to scroll through my social media feed. Because every time I do, it seems like things are going from worse to worse. And that I'm living in this perpetual meme of a dumpster fire. <laughs> or perhaps that meme of the dog who's sitting in the burning house looking around and saying, it's fine. The fear of the unknown has caused me in the midst of all this chaos that is happening in our world right now to feel a deep sense of fear and anxiety about the world around me. And I would imagine that I'm probably not the only one in this room who can admit that. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that there are probably those of us in this room who would say that the current state of our world has caused you, at least on some level, 
So in Daniel chapter 7, he gives us some powerful insights on how to maintain a perspective of hope when the world seems to be crumbling in around us. And so I want to invite us today to turn to the get back again, the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7, and to discover what it is that God has to say for us, and specifically relating to our fear of the unknown. And to do so, I would like to invite, invite uh, Forrest uh, Robin to the front to read for us Daniel chapter 7. Good morning, guys. Morning. Riley left some big shoes to fill, but I'll see what I can do. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him, Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority or allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will arise from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. The sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, that was a little weird, huh? I mean, what in the heck is going on here? If you've been joining us for any of our previous weeks in Daniel, you'll know that we started out with a pretty straightforward narrative about Daniel and his friends living as exiles under Babylonian rule. To jump now to this prophecy about four-headed monsters, thousands of angels, thrones overflowing with lava. I mean, this is really wild stuff, even by biblical standards. And so as we arrive at Daniel 7... It's important to notate that there is a difference between the two halves of the book. Daniel's chapter 1 through 6 are predominantly a narrative story with a little bit of prophecy sprinkled in. While Daniel 7 through chapter 12 is predominantly prophecy with a little bit of narrative sprinkled in. And so Daniel 7 marks the beginning of Daniel's detailed exposition of these prophetic dreams and visions that he received from God. And before we get into what that means, let me clarify what I mean when I say prophecy. Because I know some of you probably here are sitting thinking about those late night infomercials for 1-800-PSYCHICS or some old woman who's sitting in front of a glass ball flipping over cards. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We are talking about prophecy within Scripture. And prophecy within Scripture and its most basic and fundamental meaning means a message from God. And so for one to prophesy that message was to proclaim that message. And the person who was prophesying was called a prophet. And oftentimes these prophets would share messages from God that related to specific future events. And I like this description of uh, future prophecy that I found. It says that future prophecy is a miracle knowledge a declaration or description or representation of something future beyond the power of human intelligence to force, discern, or conjecture. So prophecy in Scripture is a message from God. 
And a prophet would proclaim that message to his people. And if it involved future events, it was a knowledge that not he and of himself could know. And the great prediction that runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, that's woven like a thread throughout the entire Old Testament, is the prophecy regarding the arrival and the work of the Messiah. And the purpose of this great prophecy was to not only create faith and expectancy in his arrival, but also to prepare the world for his coming. And that is what we'll see Daniel is talking about here in chapter 7. So Daniel's message of prophecy, it starts out much like kind of one of those old-timey Godzilla movies, right? Like he's talking about these huge beasts were coming up out of the water. And unfortunately for Daniel, these aren't the cheesy rubber suit kind of monsters either. He says that these are terrifying monsters and that they caused him great distress when he saw them. But Daniel's inclusion of their ascendance from the sea gives us some insight, a clue, if you will, into who or what these beasts represented. Because in biblical prophecy, when you see that word waters or sea, it typically is a reference to a Gentile or non-Jewish nation. So it makes sense then that these beasts are representing foreign or Gentile nations that would not only rise up, but also dominate the Gentile nations of the world. But what kingdoms are they? We're entering into a conversation that commentators have debated about for a long time, but there is some consensus on what they believe uh, Daniel was referring to here. So let's quickly look at each of these beasts. The first one he talks about is a lion that has wings on its back. And many biblical commentators believe that that is a reference to the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, to this day, you can go to a museum and find artwork from Babylon that depicts lions with wings on their back. And one biblical commentary explained that the lion symbol was a characteristic of Babylon, especially in Nebuchadnezzar's time. That when the Ishtar gate entrance was adorned on either side, with a long procession of yellow lions and blue on blue uh, glazed brick. Furthermore, we hear Daniel now talking about this lion having his wings plucked off his back, which is a strange thing in our mind, but it's a reference to the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar went through a period of insanity where God humbled him and gave him a heart like a man. And we know that in history, Babylon, after the, in the latter years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, became less aggressive and more open to other nations. And so we see that they're less like a beast and more like a man. So the first kingdom is Babylon. The second beast, he talks about being like this bear that has these three ribs that it's chewing on in its mouth. And he says that this bear is raised up on one side, almost like it's kind of unbalanced. And many commentators believe that this was a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire that followed directly after Babylon. And in fact, the fact that the bear was raised up on one side is a reference to the fact that the Persians were greater than the Medes in their empire. And then you get to the issue of the three ribs. 
And many commentators will tell you that this is God's way of prophesying the three great military conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire by their first king, King Cyrus, and his son. In fact, they'll say that these, the, uh, the conquered empires were first Babylon, then the Lydian Empire, and then Egypt. And bear in mind, Daniel is making this prophecy several uh, hundred years before all of these events transpired. So we have Babylon, and we've got the Medo-Persian Empire, and then we come to this next beast that is described as a leopard with four wings and four heads. And many see this as an allusion to the Greek Empire, that the four wings and the fact that it was a leopard speak to the swiftness and the sudden rise of Alexander the Great. In fact, by age 28, Alexander had conquered the known civilized world, so much so that there had been no kingdom that had achieved what he had done then or into this time today. And meanwhile, we've got then these four heads on this leopard. And this is where biblical prophecy is so fascinating and so amazing and speaks to the sovereignty of the God that we serve. Because that is a reference to the fact that after Alexander's death, the Grecian Empire was split into four kingdoms that represented the four heads. Our God knows history. So we have the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and then the Grecian um, Empire. And this last beast that Daniel talks about is the worst of them all. Daniel describes this as a ferocious monster that has iron teeth. And as you read and study, there's a lot of um, um, debate and conjecture about who or what this empire might have been. But most conservative comp uh, commentators find its fulfillment in the Roman Empire. They say this because the Romans were known for their use of iron. And that iron signifies the strength of the Roman Empire. And so we have these four beasts, and Daniel, in talking about that and sharing this message from God, is providing a prophetic look at what the world events in the future will look like. And from our perspective, as we look back through world history, it's easy for us to begin to see how these beasts line up with these different empires. But here's the thing. Daniel's prophecy was there was more to his vision and to his prophecy, and some of it is still yet to come, even for those of us who are sitting here today. Because as we read in Daniel 7, his attention is drawn to this fourth and final beast, and specifically the ten horns that are on its back. He's perplexed by it. He's never seen anything like it, and he wants to know, what does this mean? And then he says that as he's looking at these ten horns, a smaller horn begins to come up in the midst of these ten that had eyes like the eyes of a human being and the mouth that spoke boastfully. Y'all, can I be honest just for a moment? I, <laughs> I know Daniel intended this to be terrifying, and I'm sure it was terrifying, and maybe it was the cold medicine that was speaking to me this week, but when I read this portion of Scripture, all I could see was an Instagram filter of the eyes and the mouth on a potato. And I'm sitting there, and I'm studying this week, and I'm laughing, and I'm repenting at the same time, like, Jesus, I'm so sorry, man, but this is so funny. 
And if that is one of those things that you read and you didn't see that, I'm sorry, because it's one of those things that you can't unsee once you see it. In fact, I know years from now you're going to be sitting in your house sometime reading God's Word and going through Daniel 7. You're going to be like, God, got it, Pastor Nick. Now I see is a potato talking to me instead of a little horn. If I was going to have to see that, you were too. <laughs> Thankfully for everyone involved, Daniel didn't ask me for an interpretation of what that little horn was. Instead, he's given an interpretation from an angelic being that says that the ten horns are representative of ten kings who will rise out of this fourth kingdom. And that this little horn represents an eleventh or a last king that will come. And this evil king will speak against the Most High and will oppress God's holy people. He will even seek to change the laws. He will exert ex oppressive power over God's people for a time of three and a half years. And this leader that Daniel saw represented by this little horn is none other than the Antichrist. The tyrant, the enemy of God, who will usher in a period of suffering and chaos in this world unlike anything that we have ever seen before. The good news is this, is that this Antichrist, when he arrives on the scene, it will, his reign will be limited to a short period of just 42 months and not a day more. Because we have a promise in God's word that he will judge that little horn. Daniel 7.26 says that, but the court will sit and his, referring to the Antichrist, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Or as John wrote in the book of Revelation, the beast was captured and then was thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then, church, we get to the crux of what Daniel 7 is all about. Because we read that the Son of Man and the Messiah, Jesus our Lord, will rule and reign forever. And as we said earlier in this message, the predominant thread that runs throughout most of prophecy in the Old Testament is about the arrival and the work of this Messiah figure of Jesus. And Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7 is really no different than that. We see this clearly in verse 14. After the fourth beast is destroyed and the final kingdom is done, with, done away with by God, we see that Jesus is given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and that all nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And I think as Christians, we tend to get caught up in some of the imagery that we see in prophetic works like Daniel chapter 7. We tend to get focused on this image of the Antichrist or the image of these great beasts. And I want to challenge you this morning, church, to not be confused or misled by this dramatic imagery of the four beasts. The primary thrust of Daniel 7 is not the story of the rise and fall of these four nations. The primary intention of God's message is to be a story of hope and assurance for his people in every time and every generation. Meaning this, that no matter what is going on in the world around us, whether you are an Israelite living in exile in ancient Babylon, 
or whether you find yourself in 2022 having survived a pandemic and living with the threat of World War III, we can cling to the hope that Jesus Christ will return one day to restore order to our world and to right what is wrong. And on that glorious day, church, we can have confidence that our King, our God, our Savior will crush every injustice, will wipe away every tear, will wrong every right, and will rule with glory and power along with his saints at his side. That is the story of Daniel 7. And that, church, is our hope that we have in Jesus. So I would suggest to you this morning that Daniel 7 offers us the hope of King Jesus by giving us a lens through which to view our world. Or at least it should. Because Daniel 7 offers some powerful insights on how we can begin to live that hope out today. Let me just briefly flesh some of those out for you. First, the hope of King Jesus changes the lens through which we view suffering in the world around us. Daniel chapter 7, verse 21 says this, As I watched, this little horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. Daniel indicates in the clearest way possible that prior to the coming of Jesus' established kingdom, that there will be a period on this earth when the Antichrist oppresses and at times even seems to be overthrowing God's people. And as I look at suffering in Scripture, I find this principle to be true, that whenever God talks about the coming of his kingdom, suffering is always associated with that. Think about the ancient Israelites who inherited the promised land, who had to first suffer under the hand of the Egyptians before they went into God's kingdom. Our deliverance from the power of sin and death has been accomplished by Jesus who suffered in our place. Those who will reign with Christ in the end days will be those who have suffered as well. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that now if we are children, God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering is an inseparable part of the process which leads to glory. Jesus suffered, and so it will be for us too as his saints. But the hope of King Jesus coming back changes the lens through which we view the world. In the midst of suffering, we cling to the assurance, even as it seems that the world is winning, that the enemy is winning, that the evil one is winning in the world around us, we cling to the assurance that Jesus will one day return to set the record straight. And this isn't to say, church, please hear me on this, this isn't to say that when we uh, suffer, or even when we witness global suffering like what's happening in Ukraine right now, that that stuff doesn't hurt that it doesn't break our hearts, that it doesn't cause us a great deal of pain. It does. But the truth is that it, that it means that um, the hope that we have in Christ, that even as we suffer, we do so with a hope of Christ's return. And this reminds me of a story of a football game I came across this week that happened to take place at Badger Stadium, stadium uh, back in 1982. 
And unfortunately for the Wisconsin faithful that day, the home team was losing. However, any time there was a TV timeout and play on the field stopped, the audience or the crowd would erupt in cheers and would begin shouting. Why? Because while they were at that game, many of the people and the fans who were in attendance were also listening to a radio broadcast of a game that was happening some 70 miles down the road. Because on that day, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. And so we see from that that even though the fans' team was losing on the field, they were tuned into something greater down the road. And our Christian life can be like that for us today as well. Our circumstances may indeed be painful at times. We may look around church and feel like the world is crumbling around us, but we need to be tuned in to something greater down the road. Our hope must not rest in the things of this world, but in the expectancy of the return of our King and Savior. The hope of King Jesus changes the lens through which we view suffering in this world. The second thing I think we can take away from this is that the hope of King Jesus changes the lens through which we understand world events. After coming face to face with this terrifying vision of these beasts, Daniel is understandably shaken and afraid. He didn't understand what he's seeing, and so Daniel goes to seek understanding from heavenly sources. It says in verse 15 that I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. And I want us just to pause for a moment and just notice where Daniel went when he was confused about what was happening in the world around him. He didn't text his homies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and ask them to um, give some understanding to the vision. He didn't holler at another prophet down the road and say, hey, come tell me what this meant. Daniel went to the only source of information that he knew could provide answers to the unanswerable questions of life. He went to the throne of God, the author and finisher of human history to seek his understanding. And I think we can learn a lot from Daniel's example. Because unfortunately, church, there are too many of us today in churches, myself included, myself included, who look to other sources of information outside of God's word for understanding of what's happening in the world today. We turn to sources like Fox News. We turn to sources like CNN, seeking answers to questions that they can't give us. And even worse, as I survey kind of the the, uh, scope of Christian landscape, we see so many people who get caught up in these wild conspiracy theories, these wild conspiracy theories trying to gain some kind of secret knowledge or insight into the events that are happening in the world around them. We saturate our minds and our hearts with news from sources that are peddling fear porn to the masses. And then we come to church and we wonder why the church is filled with just as much anxiety and fear as the world outside of us. It's because we're drinking Kool-Aid and then we turn around and wonder why our mouth's red. 
let me be clear on this because I don't, I don't want to get any angry emails. I'm not saying that watching the news is bad. I think as Christ followers, we should be informed about what's happening in the world around us. But the point that I'm making is this, is that when a news channel, when a social media feed, when a podcast becomes the primary source or the primary lens through which we view human history, we run the very real danger of shipwrecking that beautiful gift of hope that God has given us through Christ Jesus. And so I think one of the things that we can learn from Daniel's example, as he demonstrates in Daniel 7, and really as God plainly tells us in 2 Timothy chapter, two, or chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, 17, is that everything we need as Christ followers to be equipped for every good work in our time is found in God's Word. It's not God's Word and Tucker Carlson. It's not God's Word and Don Lemon. It's God's word, he says, everything you need to be equipped for righteousness is right here. Church, we cannot be a people of hope. We cannot be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness if we are not first people of God's word. We cannot. In fact, I would say that God's word fills us with that unshakable hope that no matter what evils we see happening in the world around us, we have the assurance that one day our King Jesus will return to set everything right that's gone wrong. The hope of King Jesus should change the lens through which we view world events. And finally, we come to this. The hope of King Jesus changes the lens through which we view others. Daniel concluded his chapter 7 by saying, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by, the, my, by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Except we know that Daniel didn't keep the matter to himself, did he? If he had, Daniel would be an extremely short book, only six chapters. But we see that through the prompting and the authority of the Holy Spirit, that he shared his message of hope with the ancient Israeli exiles in Babylon as well as with us today. And I think we can learn something from Daniel's sharing of that hope with other people. I recently had a good friend share on social media a post that I think speaks well to this. This post said, God did not give us the book of Revelation so that we would build bomb shelters in our backyard. He gave us this book so that we'd build bigger dinner tables and invite our friends over to tell them about Jesus. Oof. Convicting, man. And I think the same could be said of Daniel chapter 7 as well. Because unfortunately, as Christians, we have this weird tendency that we become very insular, and we tend to hunker down in our churches when it comes to end times theology. We tend to like the safety of looking out from our stained glass windows while the world is embroiled in chaos and fear, and while every day people are dying and going to hell. It cannot be that way, church. God has given this hope, and we have to take it out like Daniel. So if the hope of King Jesus shifts our perspective from being people who build bomb shelters to being people who build bigger dinner tables, what does that look like exactly? What does that mean practically to share the hope of the gospel with our friends and neighbors the same way Daniel shared his hope with, the, of, uh, with, his hope with the Israel, Israel, Israeli exiles? Easy for me to say. 
I think one of the steps that we can take immediately as a church, and I know that there are those in this room here tonight, this afternoon, are practicing this already, but they're recovering the lost spiritual discipline of table fellowship. You say, what is, what, what is table fellowship? Table fellowship is the lost art of sharing a slow meal with people who are far from God in our neighborhoods and our communities. We live in such a fast-paced, tech-saturated culture that our dinner tables offer a sacred place to be able to share hope with our friends and our neighbors. And we do this through the breaking of bread together so that we're not only filling empty bellies, but we're filling empty souls through the sharing of stories, through laughing together, through praying with one another, through being able to um, confess to one another and dream together. The table, the dinner table is a place where lost sinners can come and find that connection and brokenness that they can't find anywhere else in the world. In fact, and I can't take credit for this, but if I may be so bold to say, I saw the author of this article make the suggestion, and I happen to agree with it, that when it comes to sharing the hope that we have inside of us, perhaps we should first invite people to our homes and around the dinner table before we invite them to church. Come into my home and have fellowship. Let me tell you about this hope that I have inside me. Church, there's no doubt that we live in a very chaotic and scary time where it becomes very easy to allow the fear of the unknown to uh, mire our faith in the weeds of anxiety and distress. But Daniel 7 teaches us that we serve a sovereign God who reigns over the course and the entirety of human history. And not only that, that we have a hope and that no matter what is happening in the world around us, that King Jesus will one day return and set right all that has been made wrong. Let us be a people of hope as we go from this place today. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.